If you turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And I have a cold, so I'll have to be sipping water occasionally and hoping not to clear my throat too much in this microphone or cough and blow your eardrums out. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we come before you and look into your word tonight, might our minds be open to receive what is in your word. And Lord, might we repent of any thoughts that we have that are contrary to the truth of what you've revealed of yourself in Scripture. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would repent, that we would repent of anything that we love that is contrary to the truth that is revealed in Scripture. And Lord, I pray that we would repent of any behaviors that we participate in that are not consistent with what Scripture reveals is what we ought to meditate on and love. Lord, I pray that for us tonight, that we might receive your word with humility, with a spirit of repentance, and Lord, with joy, as we know that in it, it proclaims you and the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. So what's one of the first questions we ask people when we meet them? I mean, after their name. We always ask people their name, right? But when we meet them after that, what's generally one of the first questions we ask them? What do you do, right? What's your occupation? I know that um, it's generally the first question I ask because in some way I think that if I know what they do, what their occupation is, I'll know how to identify them, what they're about, right? Don't we do that? We want to know how to identify this person, what they're about, as we ask them their occupation. Uh, Think about the different emotions and ideas that pop up in your head when you hear different sorts of professions. I'll list some and think about it for a minute. Someone says to you, I'm a doctor, or I'm a pastor, or I'm a housewife, or I'm a missionary. Or I'm a car salesman. Or I'm a construction worker. Or I'm a lawyer. I'm a petroleum engineer. Doesn't every one of those things bring into your mind a different set of ideas about a person? And somewhat, even emotions can be attached to some of those descriptions, can't they? And we look for that, and we identify people that, well, what if someone came to you and said, you, you, you met them and they said to you, I'm a slave. You say, what do you do? I'm a slave. Now, I suppose because we live in a culture that slavery is not you know, currently in place, 
we would be kind of shocked by the statement, right? We'd be like, what? You're a slave? How is that possible? But in the first century culture, in the first century culture, it wouldn't be necessarily surprising to hear that someone is a slave. Because lots of people were slaves in the Roman Empire at that time. What would be surprising is for a man whom you know is a Roman citizen, is probably wealthy, or was at least born into a wealthy family, is well-educated and well-trained, and is a religious leader, to say of himself, when you ask him what he does, I'm a slave. That would be surprising. In fact, it would be shocking to us, just like it would be shocking to the Greeks, because the Greeks, like us, abhorred the idea of slavery. They did not like the idea of being owned by someone else, belonging to someone else, being in subjection to someone else. It was repulsive to their minds. Is it not repulsive to ours? Naturally, we're repulsed by it. Why? Because we believe we're autonomous. You know what the word autonomous means, by the way? Auto is self, and nomos is law. It's a self-law. We believe that we govern our own lives and set the law for ourselves. We believe we're the masters of our own destinies. I heard that at a high school graduation a year or two ago. Students stood up and said, we're a master of our own destinies. The students applauded. and We believe we're the decision makers in our lives. The thought of another exercising over authority over us or imposing some outside external laws on me, or making decisions for me, is somewhat repulsive to me in this culture. I'll give you a few examples. Think about marriage. How many of you have heard this now? In marriage today, if you say, uh, there are people who say this, I'm afraid of the me getting lost in the us of marriage. Have you heard that? I've actually heard that. I'm afraid of the me getting lost in the us of marriage. Thank God the me gets lost in the us of marriage. I welcome it. But, you know, naturally, we generally don't. I've learned to welcome it because I'm so thankful for my wife refining me and taking a lot of the me out of it because the me is just generally irritating. But (laughs) it's true. But that's what we do, right? Or how about this? There's a resistance to having, to having any laws in place that take away my liberties. There's resistance to it. Even the liberties to harm myself. There's an adolescent culture now that celebrates breaking the rules and disobeying parents. I mean, it's part of the cultural mindset that we have to be autonomous. We make our own decisions. And ultimately, the idea of autonomy that we worship in our culture is an empty, destructive sham. That's what it is. It amounts to the worship of self. It boldly declares that though I did not create myself, I do not sustain myself, I do not know what the next moment holds, and I have no idea how each historical moment is being woven into a, you know, some sort of tapestry of the glory of God. Even though I don't know any of that, I make the decisions in my life. 
I'm the one who determines my future. I'm the one who's in charge. Thankfully, men like the Apostle Paul didn't do this. He did for a time. But upon his conversion and in his following ministry, he began to declare to us and show us a completely different way. The Apostle Paul came to understand that what he ultimately wanted to be was a slave of Christ Jesus. That's what he ultimately wanted to be, a slave of Christ Jesus. Why? Because there is great, listen, there is great humility and great honor in being a servant of Christ Jesus or a slave of Christ Jesus. There is great humility and great honor in being a slave or a servant of Christ Jesus. And Paul understood this. That's what I want to look at today. I want to look at, first, who was Paul and what caused the change in his life? Second, what is the humility and the honor of being a slave in Christ? And third, what's the role of a slave or a servant of Christ Jesus? What is the role of a slave or a servant of Christ Jesus? Those are the three things I want to approach. But as we do, I want to kind of provide a short review of the context from last week's sermon. Last week, I talked about four reasons that Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. The first reason I mentioned was that there had been no apostolic teaching at Rome to that date. None. Had been none. And so he wanted to provide some doctrinal instruction for them. The second reason was that there were quarrels between the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome. And he wanted to bring unity and peace among them. The third reason is that he wanted to go on a mission trip to Spain to proclaim the gospel, and he wanted Rome to be a place, the church of Rome to be a place that supports him in that mission trip. And finally, and ultimately, the reason that he writes this letter is because he wants to bring the obedience of faith to all the nations for the sake of the name of Christ. That's the context of it. Understanding that, look, at, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 1. It's real simple. It starts off with Paul as the author. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It really says three things right off the bat about him. He starts off with the fact that he's a servant or a slave. The Greek word is the same there. He's a servant or a slave or a bond servant, you may have heard, of Christ Jesus. That's the first thing he says about himself. That's what we're going to look at today. Next, he says that he's called to be an apostle. And then that he's set apart for the gospel of God. On his part, all of these activities are passive. He's not doing any of this. Okay? He's a servant of Christ Jesus. The way the Greek is structured there, the focus is on possession. He's owned by or belongs to Christ. That's not something he does. And we'll get into that. The second thing he says is, I'm called to be an apostle. Called. If someone calls me, did I call them? No, they called me, right? He's called. It's a passive. Something's happened to him. He has been called to be an apostle. And the third thing is he's set apart for the gospel of God. Again, something that God has done. All three of these things combine to give a focus on the fact that he is thinking of God and not himself as he identifies himself. He puts his name out there and then primarily goes into the work of God in his life right at the get-go. He doesn't say, I'm Paul, the great theologian. Right? 
the student of Gamaliel, the great Pharisee, the Roman citizen, all titles of honor, all titles that he uses at other places. But in this case, he wants to start off, identify himself. Well, he doesn't use great theologian, so I take that back. But you understand. <laughs> in this letter, he starts off identifying himself first and foremost as a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. So how did Paul get to this point? How did he get to the point where he went from being Paul, the man who was a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, to a man who said of himself, first and foremost, I'm a slave or a servant of Christ Jesus. What happened there? What happened in the life of Paul that brought that about? It's not a question that he seems preeminently concerned with in this text. He doesn't explain it to us here. But in other places he does. And so that we get context on who Paul is, I want to look at that first. First, I want to look at his Jewish background and training, Paul's Jewish background and training. He says that he was, in Acts 22.3, that I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, this city being Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. In Acts 5.34, we realize that Gamaliel is an extremely respected member of the Sanhedrin. And this is the man who trains Paul. He's born a Jew. He grows up in Jerusalem. And he studies under Gamaliel. the Sanhedrin. Extremely well-trained in the Jewish religion. We also learn from the text that he knows Hebrew, not this text, but through various texts. He knows Hebrew and Aramaic, and obviously he knows Greek, because he wrote a whole letter in it. He wrote several letters in it. He knows Greek. And further, it's probably likely that he knew Latin. Why? Because he wanted to go to Spain. And the primary language of Spain at the time was Latin. And it's likely, given his upbringing, that he knew it. So he's a multilingual guy who's trained, who's born a Jew. But he says something else about himself that's interesting. Is not only was he born a Jew, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, but he also was born in the city of Tarsus, which he says in Acts 21.39 is no obscure city. In fact, it's a major city in the Roman Empire. And it's not only a major city in the Roman Empire, it's a majorly well-educated city in the Roman Empire. He says of himself that not only was he born there, but he is actually a citizen of Rome by birth. Which is a major deal. You see that in the text in Acts, in Acts 22, 25 to 28. He lays this out and everybody kind of retracts. They're kind of blown away. He's born a citizen of Rome. Wow. It seems to generally indicate that there was probably from a wealthy family. Some speculate that his father may have been a tent maker because some of the greatest tents came out of Tarsus and Paul learned the trade of tent making and actually did that on his own. So his father may have had a tent making business and that may have been how the family became wealthy. That's the speculation. We don't know that. But we speculate about it. So all this resulted in Paul being, a, being not only well educated in, in Judaism, but he was also well educated in Greek philosophy. I mean, he even cites Greek philosophers in the text. The guy is an incredibly brilliant man 
born wealthy, educated well, both a Jew of kind of the first rate of the tribe of Benjamin, he says of himself, a Jew among Jews, a Pharisee, a religious leader. And he speaks of his zealousness. In Philippians 3, 6, he says, As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Look, I kept the law of God perfectly in an external manner. And I was so zealous for God and for Judaism that I persecuted the church. He says of himself that he was actually present at the stoning of Stephen, that he actually cast his vote in favor of the stoning of the first Christian martyr. He was sent on a mission by his request to go from city to city to city, chasing down Christians and having them arrested. He goes from that man to when we open up this letter, a man who says, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. How does that happen? This is the kind of guy that all of us, if we knew this man now, in our current cultural context, would say, this is a man who will never come to Christ. This is a man who, you know, we'll pray for, but it's almost useless. Right? In fact, we see it's so useless, we start giving up on prayer real quick. But yet he's converted. Look at Acts 26 really quickly. Acts chapter 26. We'll see how this conversion happened. He recounts it. And as he recounts it, he, he's telling it to King Agrippa. Speaking of his own conversion while he's on trial, starting in verse 9 of Acts 26, he says this. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Why did he journey to Damascus? so that he could persecute more Christians. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen all to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, 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 by the way, being his Hebrew name, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen me, which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I, whom I'm, whom I'm, excuse me, whom I'm sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul's walking along the road to Damascus, going on his merry way to persecute more Christians, and Christ appears to him. 
It says, why are you persecuting me? Christ opens his heart and his eyes to the truth, and he repents. And he says to him, Saul, I've called you to be my servant. Greek word there? Slave, right? Called you to be my servant or my slave. That's what I've called you to, Paul. And you're going to take my message. You're going to take the message of the forgiveness of sins out. Paul immediately responds. He goes on in this Acts passage to say that he obeyed God and it led to persecution on, for him. So he obeyed God and then he started to be persecuted. In Acts 20, 24, Paul says, I do not account my life of any value. Listen to this switch. One day he's going to the Sanhedrin asking for permission to go and chase down Christians and have them jailed and killed. And then he says to himself after this encounter with Christ, I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. My life doesn't matter to me anymore, Paul says. It's worth nothing to me that I might only finish the race that Christ Jesus called me to. The race of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That is what my life is now about. He owns me. I am his servant. And that's what I want to spend my life doing. That's what happens in a radical conversion. When God opens our hearts and eyes to the truth, and we see his glory and his holiness and his unreachable, righteous standards, and we look at that mirror and we see in ourselves the ugliness of who we are and our sin and our wretchedness, our corruption, when that happens, we have this incredible experience. When that happened for you, I know it wouldn't happen for me. We have this incredible experience of not only being sorrowful and repentant for our sin, but at the same time, a joy in knowing our Lord and knowing his grace. And that radically changes us. That's how Paul can say this. That's how he can say my life doesn't worth, isn't worth anything to me anymore. That's how he can identify himself as a slave of Christ. Because he understood that it was no longer about who he is. Listen, it's no longer about who he is. It is now about whose he is. He is now concerned with whom he belongs to rather than who he was. He's so radically focused on Christ from the outset that if you look at Romans, look at chapter 1 again. If you look at Romans 1, he starts off with this phrase that would take the Jewish reader by surprise. And there were Jews here reading this. He says, a servant of Christ Jesus. For him to start off with that would shock an Old Testament Christian. Old Testament Christian. That sounds like a strange statement, doesn't it? I'm talking about those Jews who came to faith who knew the Old Testament. It would shock them. Why? Because all through the Old Testament, when you're a servant of someone, you're a servant of Yahweh. 
And Paul has taken out Yahweh and inserted Christ Jesus in that phrase. And he has just elevated Christ to the place of the great I am, the God of the universe. And he has shocked his readers. And he's declared something right from the get-go. Guess what I'm focused on? I mean, he doesn't even get one past his name in this verse. He doesn't get past his name until he immediately turns to a focus on Jesus Christ. He is obsessed with Jesus in his glory. He wants to talk right away about who owns me and how glorious he is. In fact, he mentions Jesus either by name, title, description, or pronoun eight times in the first seven verses. Look at this. You want to see how caught up he is with Christ? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, first one, called to be apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, there's a description, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God, another description, and power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Eight times in seven verses, he makes reference to Christ, either by name, description, title, or pronoun. He continues to go back to whom Christ is. He can't even get a word out of his mouth before he's declaring the glory of Christ and declaring the supremacy of Christ in all things. That is his focus. That's what he wants to sing to this church. Whatever else this text says, whatever else it says, we know that Paul is being clear that Christ is Lord and to be exalted. And that that's what he values. You know, this isn't the only New Testament letter, by the way, that starts with this phrase. Slave of Christ Jesus or servant of Christ Jesus. Paul does it again in Titus 1.1. James does it in the first, book of his, or first verse of his letter. And Peter does it in 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1, and Jude does it in verse 1. Every, every one of those guys does it. They refer to themselves this way right at the get-go. So if you're going to refer to yourself as a slave of Christ Jesus, then we need to know what it means. What does that mean? These guys are going to start off with it. What is the meaning of being a slave to Christ Jesus? It has two meanings. It's like a double-sided coin. I know I told you guys this if you were in my Bible study about imputation and penal substitution, but this is another. I like double-sided coins, I guess. But here's another example. It is both humbling and an honor. It humbles us and it brings us honor, that title. Both things are true. First, I want to look at how it humbles us. How it is a position. Being a slave is a position of humility. Why is it? Because we recognize that we are owned or the property of another. That's humbling, isn't it? You are owned by someone else. You are their property. The Gentile understanding of this term, and Paul obviously is referring to it, one, grammatically, because he says, a servant of Christ Jesus, and he uses the noun there that he's using, he uses um, a case that is a case of possession. 
So he's talking about belonging to right off the get-go. So he's obviously referring to the Gentile understanding of this term, um, which was the idea of being in subjection to or being owned by another person, being in a state of, com- to be, of being completely controlled by another. People in the ancient world would despise slaves because it meant living without freedom under the authority of someone else. And it's humbling. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Paul says this. He's talking about sexual immorality. He makes this comment. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. You hear the emphasis there in Paul's mind? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So Paul, when, when Jesus says, you know, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a price that you go in to buy slaves. You're going to buy them out. You're going to buy them. He has purchased us. We are not our own, and it's humbling. Now, as we recognize it there, Paul also recognizes it in 1 Corinthians 3, 5. He makes this comment referring to a controversy between the fact that some people are following Apollos and some people are following Paul, and you know, himself, and he makes this time. He says, what then is Apollos, or what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. And the word that he uses there for servants of himself is the word that we normally translate deacons. Deacons. We translate it that way in Acts 6. And what were the deacons in Acts 6 supposed to do? Wait tables. Think that's humbling? Paul refers to himself as a table waiter. This is the great apostle who writes two-thirds of the New Testament books, calls himself a table waiter, someone who's owned by someone else under the complete control of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's humbled by it. We must understand that the idea of total autonomous freedom is a farce. It is. It does not exist. We either belong to Christ, we're either his slave, or we're a slave of the world, sin, and the devil. Those are the two options. To continue to chase after the idea that somehow we're in control, that we are completely autonomous, or the masters of our own destiny, is pride. And it is, by definition, what it means to be enslaved to sin. You hear that? To continue to pursue after the idea that we are in control is, by definition, what it means to be enslaved to sin. It's simply a prideful, sad, and ultimately disappointing lie we tell to ourselves. It's a deeply dissatisfying lie. It holds out the promise that we can orchestrate our own happiness, our own life outcomes, our own dreams and future and goals. But ultimately, when something happens like terrorists strike the Twin Towers, a hurricane happens in New Orleans, we get cancer, 
There's a sudden accident that takes a loved one's life. Our company's having problem begins to lay people off. One of our children's lives gets out of control. Or a child dies. At that moment, we realize we have no control. The illusion is over in those moments. It ends. And every semblance of control that we thought we had shatters. It comes falling down. And disappointingly so, and often depressingly so for us. Paul identifies when he says that he belongs to Jesus Christ, he's identifying the fact that he knows Jesus is in control and not him. He knows that he is in the humble position of receiving from the Lord whatever the Lord wants to bring to him. And that his proper response to it is to humbly serve him. He understands what Job says when Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So we must understand that to be a slave of Christ means that we are in the humbling position of belonging to, relying upon, trusting a master that is not ourselves. But what a blessing to have Christ as our master, as our Lord, isn't it? I mean, the opposite word, the direct opposite word for slave or servant is master or Lord. And our Lord, our master is Christ. We serve him. What a blessing. In fact, it's an honor to be a slave of Christ. And that's the second part of this. Not only is it humbling, but it's an honor to be a slave of Christ. Because Paul didn't just intend the Gentile understanding of slavery. He also understood the Old Testament understanding of being a slave. Being a slave or a servant of Yahweh or the Lord. In fact, listen to some Old Testament passages that lay this out. In Exodus 21, 5 through 6, it says this, The Lord said, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master. Don't we do that, Christ? I love my master. My wife and my children, I will not go out free then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. Listen, because of the love for his master, the servant became known as a bond slave. In the Old Testament, if a servant wanted to be, you know, at a point, a servant was freed and if he wanted to stay, he just said, I love my master, I want to stay. I don't want to go out. And you know what? They go over to the temple and they would bore a hole in his ear and they'd put the, that all in there and he would declare forever that I love my master and I want to be a servant. I consider privilege an honor. Genesis twenty six twenty four. In that passage, God promises to bless his people for Abraham's sake. And he says, for Abraham, my servant's sake. Honoring Abraham there. In Numbers 12, 7, the Lord, in an honoring way, says or refers to Moses as my servant. 
in Joshua 24, 29, Joshua is called the servant of Yahweh. In 2 Samuel 7, 5, the Lord calls David his servant in a way that honors him. 2 Samuel 7, by the way, is where... I better stop. Is 7 the covenant with David? 12. I don't remember. Anyways, okay, sorry. But the Lord calls David his servant. In Isaiah verse 20, or 20, verse 3, the Lord calls Isaiah his servant. And probably the thing that tips us off more than anything else, if this is a term of honor, is this one. In Isaiah 53, 11, the Lord prophetically calls the Messiah, Jesus, my righteous servant. Think of that. We are given the title that was given to the Messiah himself. The honor of being counted a servant of Yahweh, not only with the Old Testament saints, not only with the New Testament apostles, but being called the servant of Yahweh with our Christ. That's an honoring thing. John MacArthur has this great quote that I wanted to read about the double-sided nature of this. He says this, When I think of the honor in being a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it sometimes overwhelms me. There is no higher calling in life than to proclaim the gospel of God from the pulpit and to be able to teach the word of God under the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet there is also a paradox that requires the minister of Christ to realize he has absolutely no right to think he deserves to minister. He must have the proper perspective of being an unworthy slave who has the incomprehensible privilege of proclaiming the good news. And I am an unworthy slave who has the incomprehensible privilege of proclaiming the good news. You know what? You are unworthy slaves who have the incomprehensible privilege of proclaiming the good news. What an honor. It's not just mine as a pastor. It's yours as a disciple of Christ. As those who know Christ, we must understand that we've been bought with a price. We're not our own. We belong to him. We must understand that. And like Paul, we must define ourselves not by who we are, but by whose we are. So what is the life of our, the life of our master that our master, our Lord Jesus Christ, calls us to? What does that look like? What is the role of a slave or a servant? And this is the last thing. What is the role of a slave or a servant? Well, there are five characteristics I want to go through quickly. Turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. Five characteristics of our role as slaves or servants. Matthew 24, starting in verse 45, he's going to tell us the first characteristic is that servants or slaves redeem their master's time. Servants or slaves redeem their master's time. Look at verse 45. Who then is faithful is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed 
and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him in with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus makes it very clear that true servants, true slaves of the master redeem the time that God gives them. They do not sit around saying, the master's delayed, I'll get to the work of the ministry later. I don't know that he's coming back anytime soon. I'm not too worried about it. I'll get to that at some other point in life. I'm real busy right now with my own things. That is not the characteristic of a servant to do that. The characteristic of a servant is to redeem their master's time. Second characteristic of a servant or a slave is to redeem their master's talents. The talents the master has given them. Look at chapter 25 of Matthew, starting in verse 20. And you remember this parable because Jesus talks about the fact that an owner gives money, right? A man gives, he gives money to um, some talents to diff- three different guys. And, and here's the outcome of that. Look at chap- verse 20. He who had received the five talents came forward. The master's returned, and he wants to know what's been done with his money, and here's what happens. He received the five talents, came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered me to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who also had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless slave into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Listen, true servants are not only characterized by redeeming their master's time, understand that's their role, they understand that they redeem the talents the master entrusts to them. We're talking about their money here specifically, and also their gifting. The primary focus of this passage is on their money. They redeem it. They give it to the work of the Lord. But there is certainly a secondary focus on their gifts and their talents personally. And they use those in service to the Lord. They redeem it. The third characteristic of the role of a slave or servant is that they please their master and not men. They please their master and not men. Paul, in writing to the church of Galatia, has some very hard words to say for them because of the Judaizers and the false gospel that's being proclaimed. And he says of them, not only once, but twice, that anybody who preaches another gospel ought to be damned. 
That's a harsh word. And he's like, in case you didn't hear it, let me say it again. Anyone who preaches another gospel ought to be condemned to hell. Now, that's a hard thing to say to people who are your friends. Isn't it? Those are hard words to say. And Paul says this in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man? Apparently not. <laughs> right? It's pretty obvious. Or of God. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Servants of Christ endeavor to please God and not men. They endeavor to redeem the time the Lord has given them. They don't wait back. They endeavor to spend the money that God has given them on the work of the ministry. And they endeavor to use the talent and the gifting they have for the work of the ministry. That is what servants or slaves of the Lord do. Fourth, servants suffer with their masters. They suffer with their masters. It's part of the role of being a servant. Jesus said in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. A servant is not greater than his master. And as servants, we have the privilege of suffering with him. Strange word for me to use, privilege. But it's a privilege that Paul desires deeply in Philippians 3. He says, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. The apostles, when they walked out after a severe beating in Acts 5, rejoice. They leave the beating rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name because when they suffer with him, when they are persecuted with him, they recognize that they what? Belong to him. It's obvious. And they know he's their Lord and that they're identified with him. And they would rather be identified with the Lord of glory than be comfortable now. Fifth, servants pursue Christ alone as their treasure. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Servants pursue Christ alone as their treasure. And we'll end with this passage. Starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. You either love the one and hate the other, right? Every time. Every time your service to God gets in the way of what you want, because what you want is your supreme treasure and not, you know, Christ, 
you will start to despise God just a little bit that you're missing out on that joy now. Every time you let your heart turn to meditating on a love for the things of this world and your supreme treasure is not him, whenever that happens in your life, you will slowly but surely turn away from God and pursue the things of this world. It will happen to you, even as believers. It's happened to me. It happens to me all the time. I'm constantly battling with having Christ as my supreme treasure, pursuing him only, putting him above everything else in this world and desiring to be nothing more than his servant. Ultimately, this may be the single greatest privilege that we have as slaves of Christ or as servants of Christ, that he is our treasure. He is our reward because we were bought with a price. Jesus ransomed us with his own blood and we are now his and he will not give up those for whom he poured out his own life to gather. We can be certain that he will one day become, excuse me, that we will one day come before our master. We can be certain of that. We will one day come before him because he does not give up those he paid his life for. And that is our greatest privilege as slaves, isn't it? He ransomed us and he ain't selling us back. Because I'm in Christ and because his righteousness is being imputed to my account, because that's true, he will one day say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. And to enter into your master's joy. Stop and think about that. Not because I will keep all of these characteristics of a servant well. How many of you think that, man, I live that out every day. And I will one day stand before Jesus Christ because I have been so righteous. I have lived out all this. I've always redeemed my time. I've always redeemed my money and my talents. I've always been thankful for suffering with the master. I've always seen Christ as my only treasure. How many of you think that that day I can't wait to stand before him because he'll look at all my works and he'll say to me, man, you were something. Come on in. I haven't seen one like you in a while. If you live in that fantasy world, it needs to end now. Repent of it. Because it is not so. It is not so. While this is a calling for us to change our lives, we must realize that at the ground of it, at the base of it, the foundational truth is that when I come before Christ, he will look at me and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy, not because of anything I have done, but because of what Christ has done for me. That's it. Because he will see Christ's life imputed to my account because I am justified. And because I am justified, I will be declared sanctified. And because I will be sanctified, I will be glorified. And it will all be done by him. And that is my hope. And because that is true, I one day will hear God say to me, Enter your master's joy. And we will then have the privilege of rejoicing in Christ, our master, our Lord, our only treasure for eternity. Let me pray. Lord, I do thank you, Jesus, that you are our only treasure. 
and that we are your slaves. We have both the humiliating title of a slave, one who understands that he is bought and owned and controlled by another. And we rejoice in that, Lord, because we know who our owner is. We know who our slave master is. And we willingly choose to love you because of the work that you do in us. We are able to do that. And Lord, we thank you for the honor of being your servants. And it's an honor, Lord, again, because of who you are. And we rejoice in it. And Lord, we are thankful that we are able to be counted with Christ Jesus. That we are able to take on the most humbling and honoring title of a servant of Christ, a servant of Yahweh, a title that, Lord, you gave to your Messiah. We are honored that we get to take that on. Lord, might we understand that he has bought us and paid for us, and, Lord, that he continues to redeem us, and that he calls us to live in the joy of knowing his sovereignty and in obeying him, And Lord, that we have the joy of doing that, knowing that ultimately Christ already accomplished it on our behalf and that in him we are declared righteous and it is declared to be true of us that we are already holy in spite of the fact, Lord, that we know simultaneously we are sinners. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.